I remember a long time ago, I think it was maybe 1995 or thereabouts, and uh, I was taking a course with Andy Olensky at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies when he worked there. and was the executive director and senior scholar, I think was his title. And, um, and he was doing like a survey class course, maybe two weeks on early Buddhist teachings. And uh, I just had the sense from very young, you know, like as I started to think about the world and what it meant to be a human being in high school and, and then the years beyond that, that somehow I never really, it never felt right that the way to live our lives is somehow work really hard, suffer, but then you get the reward at the end. <laughs> and, uh, and you know how that is. It's not an unusual insight for a young adult to kind of look around and see so many people struggling to get, to become, to get rid of. That uh, Joko Back calls that the promise that's never kept. You know, so it's one version or another is pretty common for us human beings. And just being a sensitive type and observing my own mind and observing what's happening around me it didn't seem to make sense that, and it didn't make sense like it started just with athletics and academics and the whole social play that is so predominant, you know, as a young, as a teenager and a young adult. It just seemed like a big setup. So anyway, then many years later when I was, whatever I was in the mid-90s, maybe in my 30s, and um, I asked Andy, I said, it seems to me that the Buddhist path is a, a path of refining pleasure or something like that. I forget exactly how I languaged it. But I, th- I thought it was kind of provocative because, you know, we don't, in some ways, I think wrongly, we think of pleasure as bad or know, it's going to be a setup or something like that. And I was really gratified when Andy said, yeah. He thought about it. I could see he really thought about it. He probably wouldn't have used the words that I used in asking the question. But that that really helped me in terms of uh, yeah, teasing out some of these idealistic ideas you know, no pain, no gain kind of ideas. Because it always made sense to me that if we were interested in release, if we were interested in peace, if we were interested, if the heart's interested in freedom, then the means, the practice, the activity of our lives has to be in alignment with that flavor that the heart aspires to. There has to be some kind of integrity between, for example, what we do at a place like the Forest Refuge and our deepest 
intuitive sense of what's available, what's possible for this heart. Now I know you can <laughs> can use anything to the defilements are very intelligent. <laughs> so you know when you don't want to get up early and sit or when you know you go on a retreat and the structure feels imposing or oppressive or following our fantasy seems easier than remembering to recognize the present moment or something like that. But it created a new frame like when I was, you know, like on retreat asked to practice a certain way or when I studied the Buddhist teachings and something made a lot of sense to me and I was inspired to practice, I just, I had this frame like, how is this practice going to have the flavor of release, the flavor of freedom, the flavor of peace, the flavor of ease, and not the flavor of some neurotic guy trying really hard to get somewhere? Because <laughs> that I didn't trust so much. And maybe some of you relate to this. So a couple of weeks ago, some of you were here, I, I talked about some of the pleasures, some of the qualities of happiness that are embedded, inherent in the practice, on the path. And I, I don't think it's sort of, a, you know, a secondary effect. I think it's essential because it, it's, you know, one of the things we're doing as we practice is we're clarifying what the path is. We shouldn't presume that we really know what the path is, but we're intuiting something. And that process of intuiting, like what is the thread, the intuitive thread that's being followed? You know, this taste of release. It'd be an interesting exploration for folks at a place like the Forest Refuge to kind of put down so much of what we've learned and orient around this uh, sense, maybe intuitive, maybe more clear and direct, this maybe even gravitational pull of release, of letting go, allowing what's extra to be shed, to be released. Some of you remember I read the uh, this uh, sutta that has three, I think, very potent similes that I like to use a lot. 
The first two, I won't really go into the simile of the hen. Some of you remember that uh, it doesn't matter if the hen really wants the eggs to hatch because really wanting the eggs to hatch is not one of the supporting causes for the eggs to hatch. Sitting on the eggs, incubating them correctly, those are the causes for the eggs to hatch, not the wanting. These are similes the Buddha uses to help us understand this path of practice, this training. So whatever powerful desires we have, because we do have these powerful desires to walk this path, to wake up, to be experience freedom. But those strong desires need to be channeled into the appropriate supporting causes, taking the next steps. And then the next simile is the one about the axe handle. And the Buddha is saying that if you check your axe handle that you used all day, you might not be able to tell that it's gotten worn down compared to how it looked in the morning. But if you use that axe handle, if you use that axe every day, vigorously, year after year, when that axe handle is worn out, you're going to know that that axe handle is worn out. There won't be any doubt in the mind. And it's interesting that second simile is related to this third simile, you know, the, and I think it really has to do with this trustworthy sense of release, letting be, letting go, shedding. And I'll just read the, the simile. Just as when an ocean-going ship rigged with masts and stays after six months on the water has left on shore for the winter, It stays weathered by the heat and wind, moistened by the clouds of the rainy season, easily wither and rot away. In the same way, when a monk dwells, devoting themselves to development, their fetters easily wither and rot away. So it's true, you know, we do feel pleasure when um, we get what we want or we get rid of the pain by adjusting the posture. There's all kinds of ways by gratifying desire that we get a little pleasure. Feels good sitting in the sun, feeling the warmth of the sun on the skin. So there's the gratification, there's the pleasure we get, as we all know, through acquisition, getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. And then there's the pleasure of the release of the mind's dependence. You know, we're gratified, the heart feels pleasure when there's... Uh, no craving, no impulse 
and the heart for the moment to be otherwise. So that contentedness, the peace of the heart free from grasping. And even movement in that direction, you know, our heart having a lot of grasping, clinging, reactivity to less. So we know about this happiness of shedding and releasing already. I mean, one of the things we see on retreat, of course, how many dramas arise because of past causes, habits in the mind, mindfulness maybe not strong in that moment, the mind gets identified with the content, begins to proliferate. There's that cycle where the thought, the mental image triggers a feeling tone and a emotional content, the emotional content and the feeling tone trigger more mental activity, more thoughts, and on and on. That feedback loop between the felt sense and the mental activity, and of course that can go on for a while, and then hopefully eventually mindfulness and wisdom reassert, arise, because they also have momentum, they're also good habits. So they show up eventually. Oh, it's like this now. And the whole drama, at least the mental part of it, can collapse pretty quickly. Maybe it's a slow fade. Maybe it's like a popping of a bubble, just immediately gone. Maybe there's a resonant bodily reverberation from that mental proliferation that lingers sometimes for hours, sometimes a few moments. But we can, you know, if we don't bother to hate ourselves for being distracted or judge ourselves, we can notice that flavor of release, just even in something as commonplace as that. In a sense, the mind was entangled with the drama felt some ownership, some attachment. And then with that wisdom and awareness that was abandoned. And even though there might be some lingering unpleasantness in the body, just because, you know, the body will mirror the mental activity. We all know that, right? And the mind, uh, of course, comes and goes much more quickly than the bodily experience. So what gets set in motion in the body may take longer to unwind or to evaporate or to fade away. But in any case, you know, it really matters what we pay attention to. We could pay attention to the sense that there was a, somebody was a bad practitioner who got distracted or we could take those opportunities to notice the pleasure of release and the pleasure of non-distraction, the simple pleasure of being present, even if what we're present with is the lingering reverberation in the body of having been lost in thought. 
And that sense, that wise sense that at this time the mind knows better better than to be feeding these patterns that are a cause for stress. So there can even be some appreciation of that. And the interesting thing about the pleasure of release, the pleasure of letting go, it's just a a useful frame to look at all aspects of the path. And it really lines up with the deeper teachings on the unconditioned, right? Probably everyone's heard Joseph Goldstein's uh, simile of, I don't know how he used to tell it, but somebody either getting pushed or jumping out of an airplane and realizing they don't have a parachute, freaking out, of course. Freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, and then eventually realizing there's no ground. Because that, that, I mean, it wouldn't be so practical, but that deep sense of wanting a handhold as we're falling through there, you know, wanting a safe landing, wanting safety, presuming that there's a somebody that needs some thing, some ground, some fixed idea to get rid of this, to have that, to become somebody. So however we have experienced or sensed or intuited what the Buddha means by the unconditioned or the deeper sense of freedom, the unconditioned release, unshakable release of the heart, it's really useful to look at our practice of sila, moral integrity, and our practice of dana, generosity, and our practice of returning to the present moment, our practice of not feeding the hindrances when we're aware of them. You know, all the sort of basic practice that we do to caretake the heart and mind just to understand and really more than understand, but to directly experience and in a sense to feel these practices as a letting go, as opposed to as some kind of attainment or getting something. Buddha's well-known line here is, just as in the great ocean there is but one taste, the taste of salt, so in this doctrine and discipline there is one taste, there is but one taste, the taste of freedom. And you know, we have to probably at least most of us in some way will have to reform 
our ideas of freedom or release. Because we often, and it's just interesting being at a place like the Forest Refuge where there isn't that much of an imposed schedule. You know, we can imagine that freedom is we get to do what we want. And there's a buffet, we can eat as much as we want. I mean, I know it's somewhat restricted here, but. And that's just the general sense of freedom. That, uh, I mean, we, I catch my mind longing for that, you know, unrestricted, no bounds, no boundaries, nobody telling me or no. <laughs> Internally or externally, nobody telling me what I have to do, what I should do. I should be studying. I should be meditating. I shouldn't really eat an evening meal. I shouldn't look at that. And uh, so then it it seems, because that can feel oppressive, And then it seems like to bust free of those confines, that that would be the ticket. So this is, you know, what I'm setting up as maybe you're sensing is this difference between, you know, worldly pursuits where we have the freedom, basically giving freedom to our impulses and our habits. And I'm guessing that all of us have tried that. (laughs) I had a teacher back in the 80s, and uh, some of you might remember Swami Satchitananda. I was part of that organization for a little while in the mid-80s. And he would... You know, when people didn't like the confines of the ashram, he would say to them, well, go, you know, and indulge in worldly pleasures and see if you can find what you're looking for there. Don't waste your time here lamenting and thinking that it's out there, you know, free to do this and free to do that. Go check it out. See if it's actually what you're looking for. Because what we're looking for, whether we call it the unconditioned, but we're, we're looking for a happiness, a release, a peace, a freedom that doesn't require that endless activity that never-ending activity of adjusting our body when it starts to hurt or feeding the body when it gets hungry or this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi he has an article The Taste of Freedom At every level, the flavor of the teaching is of a single nature, the flavor of freedom. It is only the degree to which this flavor is enjoyed that differs. 
and the difference in degree is precisely proportional to the extent of one's practice. Practice a little dhamma, and one reaps a little freedom. Practice abundant dhamma, and one reaps abundant freedom. The dhamma brings its own reward of freedom, always with the exactness of scientific law. And you probably recognize that sounds a lot like uh, Ajahn Chah's teaching that's made the rounds so much. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. And what's so trustworthy about this gravitating and coming into allegiance, trusting this happiness of letting go, is of course that any moment will do, any experience will do, and in particular, difficult experience is just a really good place any challenges to be curious about is there happiness and letting go. Now we often wrongly think that well, letting go like getting rid of this difficult experience. But it's more of a, as I'm sure you all know, it's this more nuanced exploration like it is like this, I'm cold, or I'm restless, or my body hurts, or I'm lonely, or whatever we feel from time to time, some challenge. And because we're interested in this unconditioned happiness, we know that at this moment is fine, a fine place to explore to be interested in this happiness of release. Even if we don't really know any more teachings than that, just that, like if that was the only teaching, that it's here and now. Like even here and now. And if some self-consciousness arises or whatever it might be, and I think part of the reason for this talk is just to highlight this, I'm guessing this deepening intuition that's already present for us, like a mistrust of like when our way of practicing becomes really complicated, like we're lugging around with us 40 pounds of Dharma teachings that we're trying to apply in the moment. And then it it will occur to us that maybe it doesn't have to be this heavy or this complicated. Maybe it's actually more natural and simple. 
And that's why I like the sense of a, a gravitational pull, like that there's some pre-existing intuition around what it is that needs to be let go of. And I think it's really important not to presume that you or I let go, but clearly letting go happens, right? We've experienced that. So we don't want to presume that I did that letting go. We want to actually observe how letting go happens. I really, over the many years now, because I I think I read it, boy, maybe 30 years ago, but uh, Ajahn Sumedho has this, you know, maybe a 50-page booklet on the Four Noble Truths. (coughs) I'm guessing number of you have looked at it, it's, I think, still very potent set of teachings. And in, when he's talking about the second noble truth, you know, he, he talks about letting go, right? It's the, some of you know the three insights for the second noble truth. There is a cause for the dukkha, for the stress that is being experienced. The cause for this stress is the mind's attachment to desire. Right? So the first insight is to see, oh, this is the cause, attachment to desire. The second insight is in this second noble truth, the second study, training, insight is this attachment to desire should be released which isn't the same as releasing it. It's just understanding that and keeping in mind that it's extra. This clinging, this grasping, this identification, this attachment, it's extra. That's such a poignant place and practice where it's clear there's this experience of suffering it's clear there's a cause here, right? The mind is attached in this way and that that's extra, right? There's enough space or wisdom that sees, that knows this is extra. And we're, that's in a sense the meditation object. This should be released. This is extra. It's not helping anyone. Because that's the actual proximate cause for letting go seeing what's unneeded, extra, heavy, is the cause for letting go. It takes a lot of trust and a lot of patience not to want to step in as the practitioner and get rid of the problem. You know, squash it with samadhi or whatever we compelled to do in that moment. And this is what I meant about, like in all ways, whether it's around moral conduct or whether it's around dana and, and sort of abandoning that identification with stinginess in a particular way. But to develop this interest 
and the clarity around the taste of letting go, the taste of freedom, almost like it exists at different frequencies, but it's still the same taste. And the more the heart or wisdom recognizes, remembers that taste, it's, it's sort of the uh, guiding insight. And we don't need the 40 pounds of Dharma teachings. We just have this almost... Uh, almost like a a visceral memory of shedding. Sometimes people will ask, you know, well, you've been practicing for a long time. I just had my 40th anniversary of being a really, I think, sincere student of the Buddhist teachings and meditation. And, and, um, they'll ask, you know, it's an appropriate question, like, well, what's changed? <laughs> Has anything changed? And, uh, you know, I answered in different ways depending on the moment. And But one way I, I find myself answering that question about, like, what have been the benefits of the practice is just this uh, very natural and pretty dependable, seems pretty quick to arise suspicion whenever there's any appearance of suffering. So there is the appearance of suffering. Looks like there's this guy, Mark, who's suffering. But right pretty close to that arising is, this is interesting. (laughs) This appearance of somebody suffering is a really interesting phenomenon. Because there's some confidence that suffering, the appearance of me suffering, what really looks like me suffering, isn't what it appears to be. It has that appearance. And you know how it is. It can be a very compelling appearance. And there's that suspicion, that curiosity. What is this? And in moments, you know, where there's more momentum of the practice happening, there's even a a kind of, uh, I don't know, appreciation may not be the right word, but just an intuition that the whole appearance of me suffering is going to implode, and it's just a matter of time. In the the sense that it's a really uh, delicate operation in the sense of, you know, to whatever degree old habits are operating, don't trust those inclinations, right? Like even, even the ones that look good, like Dharma moves, presuming that somebody has to do something 
more than seeing this appearance of dukkha as it actually is, which, of course, involves, you know, it's not just seeing, it's feeling, it's being right in the middle, not from our sati observation tower, feeling safe, but right in the, because right with that curiosity and the suspicion that this isn't what it appears to be, that has to be demonstrated by, you know, any, any sense of being in a hurry would only arise if there's a somebody taking the dukkha as being a something. like that old story from Milarepa, maybe one of the patron saints of Tibetan Buddhism, maybe the 13th century, I'm forgetting now exactly when he lived, quite famous character in Tibetan Buddhism. But, you know, he pulled out all of his dharma moves when his cave was filled with demons, probably manifestations of his own mental tendencies right there in the cave. And then there was one very persistent demon and he had to put his head in the mouth of the demon to appease the demon, right? So there's that, that I think for me at least is that uh, expression, not of desperation so much. I mean, you could think of it that way maybe, but maybe like, well, this is interesting. Let's see what happens when I put my head in the mouth of this demon, right? To have that curiosity, not needing, not believing the impulse to run, to destroy, to whatever. And um, this little teaching on letting go is useful for any place that for whatever reason is of interest to us in our practice. So I know, you know, some of us might feel that, that we, that our practice, like in order to come into balance, we need to understand how to access or connect with the experience of joy piti or sukha. <coughs> and especially, you know, living out in the world and just the push and pull of relationship and jobs and the tremendous suffering around us. And we know it's, it's actually very true that accessing joy and ease and mental tranquility and bodily well-being. There's profound 
healing that happens and naturally then will support equanimity, more balance, more of a natural clarity, more capacity to see things as they are. But of course, like the mother hen, wanting the eggs to hatch isn't the cause for the eggs to hatch. Wanting more bodily calm, more uh, joy and rapture and ease and contentment and tranquility isn't the cause. So how might this intuition around letting go What needs to be let go of to support the arising of these wholesome qualities? These pleasant qualities that arise in practice when what is let go of? I really, because for a long time I felt that about joy in my practice, like how to recognize it for one and how to support its arising. And uh, it seems that, you know, joy is this experience minus the oppressive ideas we have about this experience. (laughs) I don't know if you've come to that same conclusion. Because for me, the arising of joy is often um, goes hand in hand with just recognizing the flavor of the activity of the moment, the activity of the body and the mind happening, moving this activity of body and mind without any friction imposed by the thinking, conceptualizing mind. You know, just the sense we we have splashes of it, right? We see the sunlight moving through the leaves and there's just something about the flickering of the light that reminds the mind of not chronically, neurotically imposing friction on everything. Just letting everything be, allowing movement to be movement. And so when we understand that um, capacity to, that the capacity that the mind doesn't have to be controlling everything that's being known. I mean, this is a lesson a lot of us learn with mindfulness of breathing, right? How many of us, when we first started doing mindfulness of breathing for the first 35 years, (laughs) (laughs) or however long, you know, it's like whatever the attention, I mean, it partly depends on your temperament, but those of us who are more controlling types, wherever the attention goes, there's control because it's infused with the sense of being aware of opening. 
The control just goes with it because it's a habit. And so we go to the teacher and we say, yeah, it's so tight. <laughs> For a while, I, it's like I would be with the sits bones on the cushion. I couldn't look directly at the breath. I would watch the breath peripherally. <laughs> so I'd, my mind would be, attention would be locked into the sits bones contacting the cushion. And I'd sense there in the background a more ordinary breath coming and going without the oppressive gaze of the meditator. <laughs> right? I mean, we have to find a way one way or another. But the interesting thing is like to, to access joy is you can use your periphery, the experiences that you're not looking at, and, and you can just almost have a sense of here in the experience of the body, mind, the activity of the body and the mind, where is that experience of the activity minus any imposed friction? The fluttering, the vibration, the tingling. And it could be through any of the sense gates. Where is the mind not bothering to project its oppressiveness? (laughs) And then notice that in a way that appreciates that whatever this is that's being known, that alive happening on its own. It's why we like so many of those, you know, we pay a lot of money to spend time by the shore and we see the flickering light or the movement of the waves or even the, the ceaseless roar of the surf or, like I mentioned, light through leaves or even movement. You know, just uh, it's sort of there's uh, activities that don't, easily lend themselves to the mind grasping. And then by keeping it in mind, we're realizing the letting go of control. Because joy is just the activity of the mind and body minus any oppressive projection from the thinking mind. You can see, and of course, then that joy has an effect on the heart, right? In uh, Anapanasati, we say that it might lead, will lead to the arising of ease, a sukha, a more resonant happiness. It's like the heart realizes, I don't have to go somewhere. This moment is quite alive. You know that feeling when the samadhi builds, it's like the mind and the body doesn't want to go anywhere. There's a sense, almost a visceral sense of being held.
almost as if the heart understands this is what you've been looking for. This fullness, this alive fullness that's here and now. And we learn to trust it, right? We let go of discontent, which has been so practiced for so long. I mean, just think about how arrogantly certain we've been most of our life. I don't know much, but this isn't it. (laughs) You know, I'm not there yet, right? I mean, isn't that true? I mean, even now, like, I'm not there yet, sure. And uh, it masquerades as a kind of wisdom. Saito Tejaniya says, your experience is only the knowing and the known, whether with reference to the object or the awareness. What, it, what, is, what is it like when it is personalized? And how is the experience different when it's not personalized? Find out. So with that ease, you know, with that, deeper sense of contentedness and that deeper intuitive sense of not needing to go anywhere or to become anyone. It turns out that's a, that awareness, wisdom and awareness is willing to just let mental activity be with what it, be what it is, right? That contentment allows us to observe thoughts, mental activity. Because there's some contentment already, we're not presuming I gotta like get rid of thoughts or have different thoughts. So then we can really see it, well, that's just something being known. And when I personalize it, it's sticky. And when they're not personalized, there's that happiness of dispassion Just another thought being known, just another thing in the forest. Many of you know this formula, this it's talked about in different ways in the suttas, but the the basic formula is seeing things as they are, especially the underlying nature of impermanence. Seeing the insubstantial and permanent changing nature naturally reveals there's nothing here for me, nothing to grasp. So that dispassion, grasping is dukkha. So dispassion, cessation, letting go. So that's That's the basic process of insight is seeing into the deeper underlying nature, that dispassion, that wisdom, there's nothing here to grasp. And then just the maturing of that into 
grasping, falling away, and the mind really internalizing and integrating that letting go, like relaxing with the free fall, going back to that simile from earlier in the evening. The Buddha says, this is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. So without needing to change practice, how you're practicing, just to be interested in how letting go is already a theme, already there. By highlighting it, it might really strengthen the ways that you've been practicing. And that's, again, not that you or I are doing the letting go, but it's the letting go as a teaching is really pointing to a gravitational, an inherent pull. To the degree that dukkha is seen clearly, letting go gets set in motion. That's the natural, inevitable result of seeing dukkha, seeing things as they are. I'll just end with this point, you know, that some people consider the Buddhist teachings on dependent co-arising kind of uh, one of the deep, certainly one of the deeper teachings. And it's really the Buddha's answering the question, well, if everything's impersonal, how come the experience of me suffering seems so personal, right? So he talks about how this appearance of me suffering can be an impersonal, natural process. But awakening also is an impersonal, natural process. Just like dukkha has a feedback loop that can keep it going, we call that samsara, as you know, awakening also has a natural feedback mechanism that builds momentum. And if you don't like the phrase letting go, use different words. But there's some way to intuit this all the way along the path, not just when we're close, but all the way along. Even little kids have some intuition about letting go. And kids are young and they don't know how to manage their emotions, you know, and they're tantruming. One of the things they have to learn is, you know, they've built up, whipped up this sort of emotional drama. They have to learn how nice it is to let that go. Otherwise, they continue for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. So let's chant and end our time together. We can turn it over, reflections.
on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.